you, Suzanne and Robin and Rupert. Will you join me in prayer? Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Lord, we do pray the prayer that we just sung, that you would come not just now to be present with us, but that you would return to set all things right. And Lord, we pray that in the meantime, in the in-between time, that that hope of your return would be fixed on you, that our minds would be set on things above. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would open our hearts and minds to your word and that they might be so changed and moved to that end of setting our minds on the things above. In Christ's name, amen. So today, we finish Titus. And as you can see, I'm OCD enough for the church. It was what we needed to hear. It's what I've needed to hear. It's been so challenging for me as a pastor, and I, I hope it's been challenging for you as a congregation. I've never preached through the book of Titus, so this was a first. I've had a number of you tell me you've never heard a sermon series on the book of Titus. That's great. I'm glad that we've been able to have that experience together, and I hope that the changes we've seen, the, the way God has spoken to us in this book, won't stop here, but will continue going forward into our future here at Monument Heights. Uh, Paul's message to Titus, this young pastor on the island of Crete, has been to teach sound doctrine because it will produce transformation. Sound doctrine leads to transformation. That's the amazing claim of the gospel. It has the power to change us from the inside out, to radically alter who we are, to reorder our loves and our desires and our priorities. And this has been seen throughout every generation of Christianity. There are endless examples of people who have been changed by sound doctrine and been transformed into something that is almost unrecognizable, something that is so new, something that is only an act of God. To show what happens when people try to escape. But it was Maximilian Kolbe who volunteered to be one of those ten men. They were going to randomly select, and yet here is this Christian in his early 40s who simply lifts his hand and volunteers to be one of the ten so that someone else doesn't have to die. That's the sort of thing the gospel does. That's the sort of people the gospel produces. Now, we would all hope to get there and at least speaking from my experience and, and from my perspective, I'm nowhere near that. But I would long to be transformed in such a way. And my guess is that that's your longing as well. So let's jump into our text beginning in Titus chapter 3. If you have a Bible or a telephone or, or some means of accessing the text, that's always helpful, as you know, because we'll work our way through the Titus chapter 3. And let's just begin with these first two verses, verses 1 and 2. Remind them 
to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So the very first thing here is is rehashing what we've seen in chapter 2 about being a good citizen. We saw that last week. But we also see something important here about the state and the Christian's relationship to the state. Where the state is not violating the law of God, Paul says we're called to obedience. Now, to be clear, this calls for balance because we live in this world as exiles We are citizens of the United States, but our ultimate citizenship lies in heaven. We live in two kingdoms simultaneously. The kingdom of man, which would be, in our case, the United States, but also the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which is what deserves our exclusive allegiance. So we walk that balance of being a good citizen of our earthly kingdom while also being completely committed to the kingdom of heaven. We're not called to worship the state or give our entire selves to the state. In fact, C.S. Lewis put this really well, and I think he walked this line perfectly. He lived during World War II, which was a time of great, uh, of great care for Christian theologians, and this would have been a more difficult conversation to have then, no doubt. But in a public speech following World War II or right around World War II, C.S. Lewis said, A man may have to die for our country, but no man must, in any exclusive sense, live for his country. Notice how he's talking about where our love and orientation lies. He who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation or a party or a class is rendering to Caesar that which of all things most emphatically belongs to God himself. Lewis strikes the perfect balance here, one that I think Paul would be proud of. Our nation, our state, our city do not have exclusive claims to our lives. But insofar as we can be good citizens, the gospel demands it. So insofar as we can be good citizens here, then we must do so. Now, I've been a pastor through three presidential administrations now. I'm always disappointed by the rhetoric I see from Christians. And by the way, those three presidential administrations have represented both of our dominant political parties. Paul is calling for submission here to rulers who are far more abusive, far more destructive than any that we've seen in the United States. There's not even a comparison. Around this time period, the Emperor Nero Nero was dipping Christians in wax, sticking them on stakes, and lighting his garden with them. And Paul was saying, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Now, of course, we know elsewhere in Scripture that when those authorities overstep and overreach and and go into uh, overstepping what God has said, they say, we must obey God rather than man. So that's always there. They never give themselves entirely to the ruler. But here, Paul is calling for good citizenship. So my encouragement to you is to avoid engaging in the nasty and toxic talk of today. 
There's so much of that right now. Our political scene is absolutely toxic. Quit idolizing political parties and politicians. They can't save you. They can't save us. You can have opinions, of course, and you should. I would encourage you to do that because that's part of being a good citizen. After all, we live in a republic, in a democratic system where opinions and voting and all of those things are part of our system. Part of being a good citizen means actively engaging in those systems. But you must not engage in slander and disrespect. You must not engage in the way the world engages. And we'll see in just a moment the reason that we don't have to live like that, the reason that we don't have to put all of our hope there is because our hope lies in something much higher. In fact, as I read from Colossians 3.1, our hope lies in our Savior who is above. And all of this is in keeping with what we saw in chapter 2 last week. The concern is that our behavior would not give the gospel a bad reputation. My behavior, your behavior would not give the gospel a bad reputation. How we live in society is an unavoidable witness to the gospel. Okay, just let that sink in for a minute. How you live, how you proceed in the grocery store, how you treat your your co-workers... How you treat your family, your extended family, is an unavoidable witness to the gospel. Now we tend to think lightly of Paul's list here in verse 2. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. And and we think, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. We we don't tend to think of, of speaking negatively of others as a problem or causing divisions or being brash and combative or being rude. But Paul says all of that is a detrimental witness against the gospel of our Lord Jesus. One of the greatest challenges facing Christianity in our day is the general public perception of our hypocrisy. They look at us and they say, those are a bunch of hypocrites. They dress up on Sundays, they talk a good talk, and they live just like everyone else. People look at our lives and they don't find them compelling. There's nothing interesting about them. There's nothing they would want. They don't look at us and say, I want what they have. They don't see any gentleness or patience or courtesy. In short, they don't see any change or transformation. Instead, they see people who claim to believe in a God that makes such a little difference in their life that if they quit believing in that God tomorrow, nobody would tell the difference. But for Paul, the gospel changes everything. Look at verse 3. For, remember that word's always key, because, so he's setting up this, this reason, right? The reason you don't do these things is because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He says we're slaves to our passions. Now I'm afraid we've weakened the gospel message. We've made it merely about praying a prayer so that we can go to heaven. And another mistake we've made is we make it one of human determination. 
See, on the one hand, we act as though humans are responsible for the gospel's effectiveness. We paint the picture of meek, sad Jesus knocking on a door, standing in the rain, hoping someone will open it up. In the vestibule of my church growing up, we had... I still don't understand why pictures of Jesus are a prevalent thing in Baptist or Protestant churches, but they are. We had this picture of Jesus knocking on the door, and he's all meek and sad, and we would sing that song. I think there's one about him standing in the rain or something like that. And I know where it comes from. It comes from a misreading of Revelation chapter 3. But we act as though the gospel is something that can be hindered by humans, We act as though humans are capable of making a decision to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get themselves out of the kingdom of darkness, to break the chains of sin, to quit being slaves to their passions and to their desires. But that's not the way the gospel is presented in the New Testament. The way the gospel is presented in the New Testament is that it is a massive invasion by the one true God. It is a dismantling of the powers of sin, Satan, and death that keep us captive, that have us bound, unable to do any differently. And as for our predicament, it is a lot closer to that of Lazarus buried in the tomb than sort of pulling ourselves up and dusting ourselves off. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. The metaphor is important. Dead people don't do much. According to verse 3 here in Titus, we were just doing what was natural. We were slaves to our various passions and pleasures. But the gospel is about God's unilateral and decisive action to break the natural order to step in and invade territory that is largely held by the devil. That's a paraphrase of the southern novelist Flannery O'Connor. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, see, notice this contrast he set up. We were once like this, but... When the loving kindness and goodness of God appeared. Do you see how it's all initiated by God? When his goodness and his kindness appeared. He does not say, but when we wised up. He does not say, when we decided to change. He does not say, when we realized we had a problem and we needed to fix ourselves. He does not say, when we decided we needed to live a more reputable life. Instead, he says, when the blinding light of God's goodness knocked us to the ground like Paul on the way to Damascus. Now, verse 5, he saved us. Just let it sink in. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. Imagine being lost at sea. Just imagine being out there in the middle of the sea. It's terrifying when you think about how big it is. What would you do? There's not a lot you really can do. That's really the situation as Christianity sees it. We are helplessly treading water, awaiting our demise, 
but the one true God, out of his abundant goodness, acts to save us. He steamrolls into this world. He is the ocean liner driving into the middle of a hopeless situation and deciding out of his own free will to save people for his glory. Salvation is not in our power. We didn't clean ourselves up. We didn't get it together. Look what the verse says. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. And notice the contrast. And it's a strong contrast in the original. But according to his own mercy. According to his own mercy. On the basis of his mercy. That is why God chooses to save. Because it's in his character. Now this word mercy I need to point out to you is probably a more loaded term than the way we use the term mercy. When we hear mercy, we simply think of someone letting us off the hook. But this word mercy, at least the way it is typically used in the world of the Bible, is a loaded term. So in the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament, you know there's this term translated loving kindness or steadfast love. It's this great Hebrew word. It's just a single word. And it generally generally refers to God's unrelenting faithfulness, his unbreakable commitment to his covenant, his, his um, unequivocal compassion, anything like that. And in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word is translated with the Greek word mercy, the same word we find here. And so often when you're reading the New Testament and it's quoting one of those Old Testament passages with that Hebrew word, the New Testament being written in Greek, we'll use this term mercy, same term here. So this word mercy is probably a loaded term that speaks to God's unbreakable character, to his incredible faithfulness, to the fact that he is loyal and committed to his promises even when everybody else fails to keep their end of the bargain. That is God's faithfulness. And so when Paul says, but according to his mercy, he's saying, according to the God who said in Genesis 3.15, I'll crush the head of the serpent. According to the God who said in Genesis 12 to Abram, I will make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. According to the same God who continues to say to Abram, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. According to the same God, on the basis of this same commitment that he made to David when he told David, someone will sit on your throne forever and ever and will rule the nations. That is God's mercy. And it's on that basis that God acted some 2,000 years ago to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not because of works done by us. Not because we're sitting here. It's important, by the way. I'm not, I'm not about to repeat what I think is an error by many pastors who say, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. In order to be a New Testament Christian, you actually need to be part of the church, okay? So I'll just correct that. But in order to be saved by God, it is not based on the works that you or I do. It is based entirely on what God has done in Christ. 
And let's be absolutely clear about that. It is on God's character, His goodness, His loving kindness, His mercy. And how does all that work? What does that mean? Look at the end of the verse. Again, we're still in verse 5 here. At the end of the verse, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So washing of regeneration, that word regeneration is important. It means the new birth. See, regenerate, rebirth, new birth. So by the washing of regeneration, that is God making dead people come to life. Lazarus being called from the tomb. Ephesians 2, you were dead, but God made you alive. All of that, that's regeneration. It's an act of the Holy Spirit. It's John 3, right? No one will see the kingdom of God unless he is regenerated, unless he is born again. That's, that's the idea. So by the washing of regeneration, that's how it's possible. And renewal, which refers to new creation, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What does Paul tell us in 2 Corinthians 5? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. She is a new creation. The idea of Christianity is that the Holy Spirit begins this transformative process that makes something new in the place of something old. We can go back to the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and talk about this, where God promises to Ezekiel that one day he's going to do such a new work that he's going to take hearts of stone out of people and put in them hearts of flesh that beat with affection and love and a desire to be obedient to the one true God. That is the work of the gospel. And that's what we see here in verse 5. All of this is ours in Christ. Look at the next two verses, verses 6 and 7. How do we get the Holy Spirit? Whom he poured out on us slightly? No, richly, lavishly, through Jesus Christ our Savior. So Jesus is the one who secures this for us. The whole possibility of transformation is not through you trying harder. It is through what Christ has secured on the cross and in his resurrection. Verse 7, so that being justified, that is being made righteous. We lose the sense of the original, but the idea is to righteousfy, to make righteous by his grace we might, so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that being justified by His grace, we are now heirs. Here is what is yours in Christ. You have been transformed and changed. And we can press into this transformation because we have a better hope. We can live in this world patiently and gently because we are heirs of God's kingdom. The best things are yet to come. The best things are still ahead of us. We are heirs because Christ has made us righteous, i.e. has justified us by God's grace. This grace of justification, this hope of eternal life is what produces transformation. So make sure you get the order right. It is God's grace poured out upon us and then the Holy Spirit changing us from the inside out. Don't reverse those orders. Otherwise, you end up in a false gospel, a false Christianity. And now, verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
These things are excellent and profitable for people. Here's the command, insist on these things. And that may refer either to the, the immediately preceding verses about the gospel or probably more likely to the whole letter, to the letter as a whole, which has really been repeating the same idea that sound doctrine, that the gospel rightly understood and rightly absorbed, changes our lives. It produces new character. It produces a new way of living and being in this world. So insist on these things. Notice that this teaching, this truth of what God has done in Christ should lead to transformation. Look again at the verse. Insist on these things so that, so that those who have believed may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And that good works is a theme that's repeated throughout the letter and especially here in our section. So insist on these things so that there might be transformation. Transformation happens through the gospel. The gospel changes us. The more we lean into it, the more we understand it, the more we reflect on it, the more we embrace our identity in Christ, the more the Holy Spirit continues to transform us. That's how it works. We press into the gospel. We lean into the gospel. And that is what transforms us. Now, how can we practically respond to the gospel and this amazing announcement of God's grace? How does this transformation take place on a practical day-to-day level? I think there's some helpful advice from a book written by Timothy Lane and, and Paul Tripp. It's, it's a little bit of an older book now. It's called How People Change or How We Change, something like that. But they write in that book a, a couple of statements I want to share with you. The first one's this. The only way to properly celebrate these realities, in other words, the only way to respond to God's grace is to humbly ask, God, where are you calling me to further change? The gospel always calls us to change. It's not one of stagnation. What qualities that you promised to your children are still not active in my heart? What do you want me to see about you? Do you see this posture of, it's all been done in Christ, but then the posture of humility that is asking for God to continue to do the work of helping us to understand the gospel, helping us to claim our identity in Christ and change us from the inside out. It's continued reliance on God's grace. It's continuing to ask God to do the work that we can never do for ourselves and that if you tried, failed miserably trying to do. They write elsewhere a couple of pages later, in fact. He calls us, speaking of God, he calls us to wrestle, meditate, watch, examine, fight, run, persevere, confess, resist, submit, follow, and pray until we have been transformed into his likeness. You have been freely justified in Christ if you have embraced him. Now the only thing to do is to press in, to ask God to do what God promised to do, to lay claim to the promises and the authority that are yours in Christ. What Paul says in Ephesians, you have been raised with him, with Christ, and seated in the heavenlies. Remember a few moments ago, I said that we are simultaneously citizens of the kingdom of man, which in our case happens to be the United States, and the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of heaven. 
And in Ephesians, Paul says that reality has already taken place. He says you are seated in the heavenlies currently. It's bizarre. Somehow you and I have been caught up in this cosmic conflict and cosmic plan of God that has us caught both in this world and also in the heavenly realms, those realms of the supernatural. And so our job is to lean into that reality so that God might continue to transform us. Notice what Paul said at the end of verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable. The good life isn't more money or more fame or more success. The good life is being transformed into the image of Christ by his gospel. That's the good life. Now remember, Paul is writing to combat some issues in the church. The character in the next few verses is the opposite of what we've just seen. Uh, You can see that contrast here when he says in verse 9, it is unprofitable as opposed to being profitable. So verse 8, this is profitable. Verse 9, this is unprofitable. So he addresses this conflict in the next three verses. Let's look at 9 through 11. 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies. See, the don't do this. He's told us what to do. Now, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissension, and quarrels about the law. Why? For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, presumably through these things, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The gospel calls for transformation. Sadly, we don't always see it. Sometimes we see no transformation, and our response, unfortunately, in our day seems to be just to shrug our shoulders and say, well, you know, I don't really know what to make of that. But notice what Paul says. If there is a person continuing to stir division, failing to be transformed by the gospel, warning them once or twice is sufficient before breaking fellowship. Now, why would he say that? Because he says that person has revealed a failure to embrace the gospel. He says they are already self-condemned because the gospel hasn't taken root in their heart. They aren't interested in Christ. They are interested in their own desires. They are not showing a transformation. See, they are doing what verse 3 said. They're still being foolish and disobedient, led astray by their passions and desires. The gospel hasn't taken root in their heart. Again, I remind you that such issues in the church can't simply be overlooked. Too many churches act as though this is just par for the course, that factionalism and stirring up division and and causing issues are just routine and to be expected. And we pat people on the head and say, well, that's just how they are. But Paul says such things are toxic and cancerous. They require removal, not passive peacekeeping. The hope, of course, is restoration. We saw that earlier in the letter. The hope is always that the person would repent, that the warning would cause them to respond and repent and change their behavior. But we can't be afraid to address destructive behavior within the church. When churches are afraid to address the destructive behavior, that behavior festers, doesn't it? And it creates further problems. It doesn't go away. It puts its roots down deeper. 
and we all know the stories of what happens. It may sound harsh, but think about it this way. When the church faithfully addresses toxic behavior, and by the way, we don't do this on our own authority, right? I'm standing up here saying this, but I don't go to a person and say, I'm righteous, you're not, here's the problem with you. We do it knowing full well that every single one of us is a sinking ship apart from Christ, but also realizing that the gospel calls for our obedience. It calls for our allegiance. It calls for transformation. And that the evidence of a life changed by the gospel is the fruit that that life bears. So when the church addresses toxic behavior, it sends a signal to everyone watching that the gospel should produce transformation. When a church takes disciplinary measures against a divisive member, everyone watching, both within the church and outside the church, sees that that church takes hypocrisy seriously, that it cares about holiness, and that the gospel calls for transformation. No longer can the neighbors look at that church and say, well, you know what, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They look at the church and they say, well, at least they take things seriously. Then Paul closes with a fairly typical conclusion in verses 12 through 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. There it is again. Devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Notice how he repeats his concern that they devote themselves to good works. Good works are actions that evidence gospel transformation. That's what it means to be fruitful. He doesn't want them to be unfruitful. In the present context, these good works especially seem concerned with caring for fellow believers. Notice he says, speed Zenos and Apollos on their way and see that they lack nothing. Take care of fellow believers. The way that a church takes care of its members is one of the greatest witnesses to the gospel. Notice how he says in verse 13 that they should lack nothing. Then he concludes by reminding Titus of the gospel of grace. Verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us. How? In the faith. Because the faith has completely changed how we live our lives and relate to each other. And then he closes with this, grace, grace, which is the name of Christianity. Grace be with you all. Last week, we talked about being a distinct community founded upon sound doctrine. That's the message of Titus. The gospel, it has to get into our heads and into our hearts and into our hands. And it has to be part of us, in our bones and in our blood, the air we breathe, the way we see the world. When the gospel takes root like that, then it produces transformation. And we do that together. We do that as a community We greet each other as those who are in the faith together. We together must be a community fixated on the gospel, on sound teaching, on calling each other to deeper faithfulness in the faith that has been delivered to us. Sound doctrine leads to transformation, and that is the calling upon every local congregation.
Pastor Rupert's coming to do the pastoral prayer for us this morning. As always, I just want to leave you with an invitation. We'll be outside after the service, and you can contact us during the week. The gospel calls for a response because it is an announcement of what God has done in Christ.